if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob Fratz. Alrighty then, good morning to you. Thank you so much for waking up and joining us to start your day at nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on AM 1420, The Answer. And what a great day it is when you can wake up and the first person you speak to, well, after I said goodbye to my wife this morning as we both went to work, to be Congressman Jim Jordan. That's right, Congressman (laughs) Jim Jordan. Good morning, sir. How's the coffee? You doing all right? I'm doing. I'm actually drinking coffee in the airport, getting ready to fly to DC, and uh, got chills. I mean, it's because no, normally when I come on, it's not right after you had played your intro there with those great statements from so many great Americans. It's, mm-hmm. It truly is a great country, and I love what what Reagan says: "We will never surrender for it." I mean, I just I I love and Kennedy and Roosevelt and everyone. I mean, and and, and uh, Martin. I mean, just just great stuff. Just great stuff. So yeah, it's good well, to be with you. How was your weekend? That. It was great, thank you, and uh, and I appreciate your kind words on that. We do take pride in that. We've been playing the Reagan stuff for years and years and years, actually, at the top of the show, and you're right. Normally, you join me after the bottom of the hour, so you don't get all yeah. of that stuff. So I'm glad you are able to hear it, and I'm glad it meant something to you, because that's our goal, uh, is to reach out to people and make sure they feel something. Okay, Congressman Jordan, uh, thanks for coming in. Like uh, For those who don't know, as you just pointed out, you're flying, so you won't be able to come on your regular time today. You adjusted your schedule for us, and that is greatly appreciated. Let's start with today. It's a big day. The Oversight Committee is finally going to get to view the document prov- uh, proving, yeah. at least according to what some of the whistleblowers have said and what you guys have said, this document, um, that they had been weeks and weeks and weeks in withholding, despite a subpoena, uh, uh, they, uh, they've withheld this document that proves the allegations of the Biden crime family bribery scheme. What can you tell us about this? Uh, later this morning, uh, Chairman Comer and then the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, um, 
Mr. Raskin will be uh, meeting with the FBI and viewing that document. My understanding is they're bringing that document to Capitol Hill. So the FBI will come to Capitol Hill. Um, those two members of the, of the committee, the, the, the top Republican, top Democrat, will look at it along with key staff members, and then uh, we will get a briefing on it. At some point, Mr. Comer, I've talked to, I talked to Jamie last night, I talked to him all the time, um, they, they want that to be made available to everyone on the committee. More importantly, they want that, that document to be made available to the American people. And we're going to continue to push for that. The Speaker of the House has indicated he is willing to use whatever whatever compulsory means he can. Um, you know, we can't compel him, but at some point, if they don't do it, there is the possibility of holding Mr. Ray in contempt, something the chairman has indicated that he is willing to do, and so has the Speaker, and I support those, those two individuals. So we'll see. The one thing I would say about this, Bob, is I actually think that the reluctance to share this with us is driven mostly by, this is just my hunch, but my hunch is that this document is pretty compelling. And when you compare this document that we haven't been able to see with the dossier and what Durham said in his report and what we all understood even before Durham issued his report, which was that not one substantive allegation in the dossier was ever corroborated, ever proven, ever validated, and they, yet they use that to go spy on a presidential campaign and, and, and American citizens. I think that's what they're afraid of. I think that when you see this document, it's going to be so much more compelling than that stupid dossier that was all a bunch of lies. And that's why they don't want to show it to, uh, to the American people. Well, I have no doubt of that. They're terrified. I mean, this is the kind of thing that could technically bring down a presidency if he is indeed complicit and there is proof now. Uh, a couple of follow-ups. Number one is, will Chairman Comer and uh, and uh, Ranking Member Raskin see a full version or a redacted version? Uh, I'm sure that they will have, I mean, I'm pretty sure that they're going to have the confidential human sources name redacted. Um but I think it's going to be largely unredacted what they get to see based on my conversations with, with uh, Mr. Comer. Uh, so the, the, the redaction should be very limited, should be to, to protect the source. And look, we all understand that. But, um, you know, the idea that they don't want to make this public and let the American people fully, fully grasp and see this and, and, and evaluate it, I think, is, is a big problem. Congressman Jordan, t- tell me the the procedure here. Um, so, so only the chair and the ranking member get to view this, and then what? They take that information as much as they can remember and share it with the with the other members. The re- rest of the members of the committee don't get to see this. So, what's the value as far as the committee taking any action? Well, I think this is this is in Mr. Comer's mind, and you know, I don't want to speak to Jamie, but I think this is just another step in in the process of getting this made public for the American people. So I think the next step will be, we want all members to see this. We're going to have the staff who's in there along with the chairman brief the members. I think that's where he wants to go next. And we want to make it available to the members. Then we want to make it available to the public. Um, maybe even at some point have someone come in and have a public hearing on. I, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's, it's, this is normally how these negotiations go back and forth with the executive branch and the legislative branch. I've been involved in these oversight investigations for a long time now, and it's always this accommodation process back and forth. But the goal is always to make sure the American people are fully informed about what their government has been doing or maybe in some cases hasn't been doing. Because my, my gut also tells me that they probably didn't didn't really investigate after they had what, what, what what's in this 1023 form and, and, and what the information the confidential source uh, had given to them. Congressman, um, I get that. I I want the steps to be taken to toward getting it ultimately released to the people. But again, what is what is 
Congressman or Chairman Comer do with this information once he has said it? Is he is he sworn to keep it secret still? Is he allowed to tell the other members of the committee what it said? Um, what what does he do with the knowledge, or can he do anything with the information, think, or is it still basically you know still kind of being kept uh, kept a secret? No, I think he's going to be open to sharing it with us. Um, you know, he said some things publicly. He said the other last week that he'd actually seen the document. I think he's seen the document via Senator Grassley, and I think Senator Grassley had seen the document because the whistleblower had come to him. Um, so, you know, I, I do think he's going to he's going to make uh, the, the facts available to us that he's seen and the staff has seen. But again, that'll be depend on exactly the terms of this this meeting when they get there, and here are the terms that they agreed to in order for uh, the chairman and the ranking member to evaluate. And and then the last thing is this document considered classified. Nope, not not well. Again, this is based on what Senator Grassley and Chairman Comer have said, but they said it is not a classified document. So that's even more reason why it should be made available to the American people. Yeah, so they 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 have been holding this thing and guarding it very very tightly. I think for all the reasons you outlined a couple of minutes ago, and uh, it'll be very well, interesting to see. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, no, they'll say Bob. They'll say, well, it's a it's a potential ongoing investigation. We've got to protect the confidentiality and and the and the. Uh, uh, secrecy of our source. We don't want to jeopardize that. He could be in danger. And look, we, we, we understand all that. But there's also the, the purpose of the American people, the taxpayers of this country, the citizens of this country, understanding what's going on, particularly when it involves, uh, you know, now our commander in chief, now our president. Well, you know, you understand uh, the, 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 you know, the importance of protecting confidentiality of sources, because when they come forward, look what happens to them. Look what happened to the whistleblowers yeah. who testified well, before your weaponization subcommittee, right? Well, well said. They get the, they have their clearance taken from them. They uh, they they treat uh, Mr. O'Boyle the way they did to his family, a newborn child, and wouldn't even let him get his access to his belongings. So, yeah, we understand. That. Yeah, uh, Congressman, let's pivot to the debt deal that finally got done and Biden signed it a couple of days ago. The uh, Democrats are championing it. Hey, it's a huge win. Look at Joe Biden. He outsmarted the Republicans. It's $4 trillion in new debt that we agreed to. Why was mm-hmm. this acceptable for us to agree to that? Well, in general terms, it's first debt ceiling. There's been 10 now in the last 11 years. This was the first one that actually cut spending year to year. So I've only voted for two of those 11 debt ceilings in the last decade. Um, and they were the two that actually got something I thought moved us in a better direction uh, when it comes to we got something for it and, and improved the situation. But this one is the first one that actually cut spending. But I tell you what I really like about this, this deal, I think the, the strongest feature is that I do think it begins to change the framework and give us a chance to win on the appropriations process. And it's, if you go back six months, we all remember that $1.6, $1.7 trillion package, one big ugly bill thrown together uh, back in December that spent all kinds of money, and all of us voted against it. Mitch McConnell and some Republicans went along with all the Democrats, and they passed it. I was afraid the same kind of dynamic was going to happen this year with the appropriations process, and I said, look, what we got in this, this debt ceiling agreement was a provision that said, if we don't do the appropriations process the way it's supposed to be done, the way it hasn't been done in 15 years, if we don't do that, when we get to January 1st, there's another 1% cut that kicks in. And that's the incentive to actually, I think, do the appropriations process the way it's supposed to. And, and when you do it the way it's supposed to, we have a real chance to win on policy. My number one goal this Congress has been to change how these agencies are treating the American people, and specifically when it comes to DOJ, is to not allow the FISA, the 702 portion of FISA, to be reauthorized in this current form. And we have a better chance of making that goal happen, which I think is the most, what I think this election was about. It was about the weaponization of government. We have a chance. 
with this new framework to actually win for a change. If we didn't change this, I was afraid that what was going to happen is they would throw that Pfizer reauthorization on that $1.6 trillion billion omnibus kind of package like they did six months ago, and we would we'd be in the, the, the same darn situation where we wouldn't be pushing back and stopping some of this weaponization on the American people. Congressman Jim Jordan is, of course, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee. Um, Congressman, I'm not a big fan of groupthink in any way, but I do like it when mm-hmm. conservatives stick together. Conservatives like the Freedom Caucus. So, so yep. you know, you make you made a very good argument just now. You explained yourself, but obviously, your colleagues on the Freedom Freedom Caucus saw it differently, and the majority of them uh, were opposed yep. to this deal. How do we how do we reconcile that? No, look, I understand it's a huge amount of new debt this country's taken on, but I do know this, the debt ceiling was going to go up. And here's what was going to happen. If the bill that Speaker McCarthy didn't negotiate, uh, if that bill that he negotiated with the president, if that didn't pass, you know what we were going to get? It was, it was, you know, it was going to be a clean debt. We were going to raise the debt ceiling and not get any spending cuts and not get that provision that said on January 1st is a 1% cut if we don't do the approval. We weren't going to get the, the work requirements. We, we were going to get a clean debt ceiling or actually it could have been worse. I think if we didn't pass that package, we were going to get a clean debt ceiling plus Ukraine funding. You saw what Lindsey Graham said. Lindsey Graham was against the bill because he said it didn't spend enough. Tom Cotton said, this doesn't spend enough on defense, so we've got, to be, we've got to take care of Ukraine. I mean, these are Republican senators saying that. Bernie yeah. Sanders says he votes against it because he says, oh, you made cuts to work. You put in work requirements and other things, and you cut, you cut spending. So you got Republicans and Democrats saying they want to spend more money. Holy cow. We had better take this deal. And the, the Republican Party, 70 percent of the Republican Party did stick together on this legislation and, and that, in the House and vote to uh, send it over there. Again, I would have preferred more cuts. I would have preferred not that huge increase in the, in, the, uh, in the amount of money we're allowed to borrow. But I just know this. In the 11 I've seen in the, in the last decade, or the 10 I've seen, excuse me, in the last 11 years, this one was the first one ever to cut spending year to year, give us work requirements, give us permitting reform and set in place that provision, which I think gives us the chance. And sometimes you got to look at, I think, you got to look long-term a little bit and say, how are we going to accomplish our number one goal, which is to stop the weaponization of government against the American people? And this, this outline in this bill and how it sets up the appropriation process gives us the best chance. Now, we, we, still may not happen, but I know in my time in Congress, I, we've never had a better opportunity in a better framework to do what needs to be done than what this gave Congressman, uh, I would like to follow up on that, but I know your time is short, and I want to get one more question. Is On, thir- in, on Thursday, you sent a letter to Merrick Garland uh, asking for details about the extent of the FBI's involvement in the Durham probe, uh, actually in the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the special counsel probe run by Jack Smith, I should say. Uh, tell me what you're looking for here. What did you ask the Attorney General for? Well, just in a general sense, it, it, it sounds like, basically, you know, I guess the, the grand jury's convening, uh, Looks like if you can believe some of the media reports that they're actually going to indict President Trump on something. I don't know if it's obstruction or what relative to the classified documents. And I, I, we're just kind of curious who's all on the team. Is it the same people who run? Is it some of the same people who run the Mueller team? Because we know with with the Durham report and the Mueller team how 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 crazy that whole process was with with. Uh, what they did there, and, and the fair to do certain things that made sense in the best. There were certain people that the agents in the Mueller team wanted to go interview, and, and the top people in the Mueller team said, no, 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 we, you shouldn't go do that. And they, they pushed so hard, but they, they said, no, in fact, they even moved one person to a different part of the case because they didn't want them to continue to, 
to push for interviewing this individual who should have been interviewed. You read through the report, definitely should have been interviewed. Um, so we kind of want to know those kind of, uh, you know, is there, is there, is there a correlation in some, some, some of the same people there? Those are the kind of questions we were interested in. You know, and and one quick follow-up on that, just on the state of the FBI now. James Comey is uh, out on uh, a book tour now, and in fact, he's going to be in Parma, I think, uh, tomorrow. It's going to be tomorrow, actually, and there's a whole bunch of people waiting for him with uh, with messages, from what I understand. Um, but he's out there saying, we've got to support Joe Biden. It's got to be Joe Biden. He's out there uh, ma- you know, making very clear what he did when he was uh, running the FBI. Chris Ray is not much better in terms of, uh, of how he's running this thing. How would you define the state of the FBI right now? And how quickly do you think it must be, I don't know, dismantled maybe is a good word. We don't want to destroy it because we need it, but dismantled and rebuilt in a better way. There are 278,000 reasons to be concerned. That was the report three weeks ago that said 278,000 times the FBI queried the database uh, in the FISA process and, and, and was getting information about Americans they should not have been able to get. That's that's a reason that that shows how serious the problem. When when James Comey was there, he got a memo. This is straight out of the Durham report. He gets a memo from the intelligence community that says it looks like we have real intelligence, credible intelligence that says it looks like this whole Trump Russia thing is a made up matter coming directly from the Clinton campaign. There's a memo that's sent to Comey. Comey doesn't share it with the agents. He doesn't let the agents on the Crossfire Hurricane see that memo. You got to be kidding me. That's straight out of the Durham report. So this is why John Durham has done done the country a service. I understand some people feel, you know, and I get it. No one's being no one's being prosecuted that they think should be, but the but the facts he points out and how bad that investigation was, how wrong it was, how it did not start with any proper predicate, and then they did things like I just described where they didn't even share critical information with the agent. This one agent when they interviewed him, when Durham's team interviewed this agent who was on Crossfire Hurricane, they showed him that memo. And they asked him if he had he seen it. He had not seen it. He read the memo. When he got done reading the memo, straight out of the straight out of Durham's report, he got up. He became visibly uh, upset, emotional, gets up, walks out of the room, comes back in and says, I did not see that memo. I should have seen that memo. That memo could have changed how we did this whole investigation. That's how ticked the guys, the, the good people who do the cases were that that information was kept from them. That is so important, and most people don't know that. Most people, of course, haven't read the Durham Report. We try to give as much information as we can through conversations with people like you, but that's very, very big. You know, I believe communities are safer, whether they be cities or townships or whatever, when they can trust their law enforcement, The people trust the cops. Yep. Well, this is the federal law enforcement agency. Can the people of this country trust our federal law enforcement agents? They can trust the, they can trust the rank-and-file guys. They sure can. It's folks at the top who are the problem. Uh, and, and I think everyone understands that. Um, that's why we got to change the people at the top and change what they can and can't do there in D.C. Bob, i got to jump on a plane here, brother. Good to talk Ta- to you. Perfect timing anyway. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it very much. You bet. That's Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. I was about to wrap with him. It was 926. We got to get to our Pledge of Allegiance, uh, as well as some other things. Uh, so that worked out very perfectly. And again, appreciation to Jim Jordan and his team for getting him on the air with us, even though we knew he was going to be on a flight during his regular, uh, regularly scheduled time slot this morning. So, Patriots, we'll take that into our pledge here. If you would like to stand and face your flag, put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge. If you are uh, not interested in liberty and freedom and our Constitution and all the things that flag represents, in other words, if you're a leftist and a Marxist, you can go ahead and take a knee instead next to that unemployed quarterback over there. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, 
with liberty and justice for all. We'll take that time out now at 927, get you some bottom-of-the-hour news. We'll come back. We've got plenty of time for you. We're open until 1010 this morning, so let's do this. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Always right radio right back. Waking up America from its woke, always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. The left says uh, woke is going to be gone. The term woke, that is. Woke should be gone. Wokeness should be gone. And I uh, trust people like Ron DeSantis to help lead that fight. People like Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, whether either one of them ever becomes president or not, they're very, very much uh, in the camp that is trying to ban wokeness. Uh, so, yeah, we'll try to wake up from the woke slumber. Ron DeSantis, um, you know, has has made it his mission. He said he's made Florida where woke goes to die. And I like that messaging, uh, even though some people don't, uh, you know, have a hard time defining woke. Nikki Haley struggled a little bit with defining what woke is, but DeSantis goes Well, woke is, a, is an existential threat to our society. I mean, it's an attack on truth. It's a form of cultural Marxism. And it really subordinates merit and achievement to things like identity politics. You can't have a vibrant free society if every institution is dominated by woke ideology. And to say it's not a big deal, uh, that just shows, you know, you don't understand what, what a lot of these issues are right now. Particularly when wokeness invades things like, I don't know, our national defense. I'm proud to have served in the United States Navy and done a tour in Iraq. And the people I served with were honorable, patriotic people. For you veterans in the crowd, thank you for your service. I think all of us have a sense of pride in being able to wear the cloth of your country, but we've seen the military become politicized in recent years. You see woke agenda being imposed on it. On day one as commander-in-chief, I rip it all out. We're getting the military back to basics. We're going to improve morale, and we're going to get people to want to join the military again. I love the messaging, because how many people, how many people who have thought about joining the military watch these commercials, watch the stuff that they're pushing and promoting, uh, and listening to people who are already enlisted and who can't wait for their terms to be up so that they can get out? Look at how, how, uh, how bad it has gotten. And that's our U.S. military. That's our, literally our national, uh, you know, defense. And the left thinks it's going to go away. Alyssa Farah uh, was uh, talking about this at the CNN town hall. She thinks that the word woke that we are all kind of uniting around and kind of uh, coalescing around, you know, the with the ability to kill it off because wokeness is so bad for this country, and it is. It's bad for our kids. It's bad for our military. It's bad for our schools. It's bad for our culture all the way around. She says it's going to be gone after this coming election. The word woke. It used to be used by progressives to talk about an awareness of inequities and historical inequities. But obviously it means something else to conservatives criticizing it. What does it mean to you? How do you define woke? There's this a- is Nikki Haley. This is Nikki Haley. We'll get to the Alyssa Farah part. A lot of things. I mean, you want to start with biological boys playing in girls' sports. That's one thing. The fact that we have gender pronoun classes in the military now. I mean, all of these things that are pushing what a small minority want on the majority of Americans, it's too much. It's too much. I mean, the idea that we have biological boys playing in girls' sports, it is the women's issue of our time. Is it? 
She's being redundant a little bit, and uh, I don't think she answered that question well. But now here we get to Alyssa Farah saying wokeness is going to be gone. The term, not not the issue of wokeness, because that will continue, and the fact that people are going to be calling a woke, she says, is going to be gone. I think is that, that the Republican I, voters see it. I'm not sure that I think this is the women's issue of our time, and, and I've said this before. How can it not be the women's issue of our time when wokeness has led to the disappearance of the term woman? How can it not be the the defining issue for women of the time when women are in jeopardy more than ever before? I mean, literally, more than ever before, because their identity has been erased, much less their private spaces and their sports teams and their, uh, you know, and the. I mean, they're they're literally continuing. I just saw a news story today in Minnesota. They're about to put trans women, i.e. Biological men in the women's uh, uh, um, correctional facilities, the jails and the prisons. How many times do we have to see rapes happen in those places before that will stop? Women are in severe jeopardy because of wokeness. Of course it is the defining issue of the time for women, but continue. Listen, she needed to throw some red meat to the base. Um, last night felt very much like a general election performance for a Republican candidate until she got into the trans issue and guns issue. I remind folks, this is an issue that is the minority within the minority. The trans community is an incredibly small community within the United States. That- and yet, the trans community, an incredibly small community within the United States, has somehow managed to take over the airwaves, your screens, your stores, your um, child's schools, libraries, parks, city streets for parades, for such a tiny, tiny, small part of the community that you're talking about, why have they been able to dominate everything over the massive majority? That is what we are fighting. Then break that down even further to it dealing with athletes in high school or collegiate level. That's something that I think a conservative could push back and say, why can't local governments deal with this? Why can't school boards? Why can't the NCAA? Why does it require the federal government and the presidency to deal with it? So I'm not sure that has a lot of legs to it. I also think we're going to retire the word woke after this election. It is so overused, it is losing all meaning. It is so overused, and it's losing all meaning, says Alyssa Farah on, on CNN. Uh, it probably is being overused, and it is losing its meaning if people like Nikki Haley are the ones left to define it, because Nikki Haley did a lousy job of defining it. She did. She over she overemphasized the women's sports part of this as if that's the, the primary issue. The primary issue here is so much bigger and so much deeper. And let's explore that a little bit now, shall we? If you thought that Target was having any second thoughts about their uh, about their decision because they lost ten billion dollars in ten days, their decision to put uh, this this grooming merchandise out in the front of their stores uh, aimed at toddlers and little kids, including girls' swimsuits with tuck pouches for boys. For boys' genitalia. Um, If you think that the pushback that they got and the massive, massive amount of money that they lost um, has deterred them, you you would be mistaken. This is what wokeness, Alyssa Farah, looks like. And this is why it, it is, uh, and, and Nikki Haley should pay attention here, too. She doesn't quite understand the term the way DeSantis and Vivek and others do. Um, this is what wokeness is all about. Target 
since the George Floyd riots in 2020, Target ramped up its DIE work exponentially. That's diversity, inclusion, and equity. This agenda extended far beyond enhancing representation and support of historically marginalized groups externally and within its stores. It went much further. It dipped into funding organizations with far-left and blatantly woke political agendas. For example, Target's, and this is a Fox News report quoting here, Target's accelerated uh, DIE program in response to Black Lives Matter activism under the leadership of its diversity chief, Kira Fernandez. The chief has demanded that white women get to work to combat uh, systemic racism in America. Um, the leader of the Target DIE initiative, Kira Fernandez, has declared that the United States should shut down and give away sovereign land such as Mount Rushmore because it is, quote, an internal, I'm sorry, international symbol of white supremacy, end quote. You following this? Target has funded grantees pushing to shut down Mount Rushmore and to give that land away. They have also called for the demilitarization of the, quote, violent, end quote, U.S. military. The same grantee funded by Target supports the destruction of Israel's Jewish character through what it called the Palestinian Law of Return and implementing economic warfare tactics against the Jewish state, such as boycotts and sanctions, so that they could, quote, free Palestine. Are you following me here? This is what, she thinks this is going to go away after an election? This is so deeply embedded into the American DNA now, this wokeism, which is exactly what the goal was. It is so deeply embedded it's, uh, embedded, it's not going away anytime soon. It's not going away maybe ever. The only thing we can do is continue to fight back against its effects. Another Target Foundation grantee said parents must teach specifically white children about systemic racism and make them see color. Also claimed that capitalism maintained a role in perpetuating racism, so it's anti-capitalist. It's anti-white kid. It's white kids see color and be ashamed of yours. That's funny. I remember a time during the Civil Rights Movement. I remember, uh, well, I didn't remember the time. I was too young. But I remember from, from studying my history that during the Civil Rights Movement, they were trying to do just the opposite. We were trying to be colorblind. We were trying to make sure that people were judged based on who they were, not what they looked like. What they did, not what color their skin was. That was kind of what the movement was all about, wasn't it? Now it's let's go back to judge people based on what they look like. And if you look white, you're judged to be evil. This is what Target backs. You understand this? The Target Foundation's webpage reflected that it funded an NDN collective in 2022. This is obviously very recently. A South Dakota-based nonprofit with a revenue stream that reached as high as $50 million, according to its 2021 tax filing. Well, NDN operates with a, quote, racial equity lens 
and is, quote, dedicated to building indigenous power through organizing, activism, philanthropy, grant-making, and narrative change. The NDN collective identifies as intersectional, which, of course, as you know, if you listen to this show with any regularity, is an idea coined by critical race. This is this is critical race um, brings us, critical race theory brings us intersectionality. It holds that America is inborn with structurally racist and misogynistic systems that cross over one another, that intersect with one another. And they can intersect upon an individual to form numerous layers of persecution by joining forces with other oppressed groups. NDN, backed by Target, given tons of grant money, hopes to move toward, quote, liberation. The organization's campaign, called Land Back, calls for America to give up its public land, including, as noted, quote, the closure of Mount Rushmore, return of that land and all public lands in the Black Hills, South Dakota. It's our cornerstone battle. Not only does Mount Rushmore sit in the heart of the sacred Black Hills, but it is an international symbol of white supremacy and colonization. To truly dismantle white supremacy and systems of oppression, we have to go back to the roots which for us is putting indigenous lands back in indigenous hands. So understand this is so much more than just girls swimsuit with boys tuck pouches at Target. It's more than just putting I'm happy to be queer on T-shirts that fit only two-year-olds, as if a two-year-old has any earthly idea what a queer is or what it means to be queer. But we're going to put that out there for kids to wear. It's so much more than this. Target is slow-walking its own suicide. At least if I have anything to do with it, and hosts and voices and platforms like these have anything to do with it, because we need to get this message out. Moms and dads stopped shopping at Target the minute they found out about the swimsuits and the Pride Month displays, which, by the way, many of which have been either moved to the back of their stores or dismantled. They claim because um, of threats from conservative activists who were coming in and threatening violence, which is just hogwash. They moved them to the back of the stores because they were losing billions because of the backlash. So if I or and others like me, and it's going to take a lot of us, and a lot of you have any uh, hope of trying to, to, to kind of slow, if not stop, this ridiculousness, we have to make sure everybody knows what else Target is doing. Target is a, is a blatantly critical race theory-driven, intersectionality-driven, woke haven. Woke, I mean, you know, Target, of course, is born in Minnesota, which has become almost as bad, if not as bad, as California, California and New York with respect to being, you know, the bluest and most radically Marxist Democrat states. And that's where Target is, is headquartered. Target is slow-walking their own suicide, at least that's what we need to, we need to make happen. They do, the swimsuits are one thing. Get rid of Mount Rushmore is another demilitarize the United States because our military is racist and violent. Get rid of the Jewish state. End our support for Israel. Support boycotts and sanctions against the the state of Israel in order to to free Palestine. And on and on and on it goes. 
So, no, Alyssa Farah, wokeness, the term wokeness is not going to go away after this election. The term wokeness will go away only when wokeness goes away. And that is going to be a battle that may be, it may be forever. It may be forever battle. And we have to win each individual skirmish in order to win that war. Uh, and I'm glad there are some people who do understand wokeness. Vivek Ramaswamy does. Ron DeSantis does. Listening to Nikki Haley, I'm not quite sure she does. Uh, you know, Tim Scott and some of the other candidates. We're going to talk more about the presidential uh, primaries and so forth. A, some new news, by the way, which we'll talk about after this time out. Um, the debate requirements are set. And one candidate, one candidate in the Republican field, primary field, may not like the debate uh, participation requirements. I'll tell you what that means, and we'll see what you have to say about it, too, at 216 right after this on Always Right Radio. Okay, 9.57. So, a uh, brief follow-up to what I just said. The RNC has set the debates. The first debates are, they have a date, they have a location, and they have some criteria that I find very interesting. The Republican National Committee says it will be uh, considering a second night, to adding a second night to the first GOP presidential primary debate, which is coming up in August in Milwaukee, according to new qualifying standards announced just this past Friday. The first debate is going to be August 23rd. It's going to be on Fox with a possible second date of August 24th if enough candidates meet polling and fundraising criteria and also commit to supporting the eventual Republican nominee and pledge that they will not participate in any outside debates. That's important, all of that, just to make sure you heard all of that. Day one is going to be August 23rd. If there are more people who qualify, and if everybody is willing to say, I will pledge to support the eventual nominee and not go outside the party, then they'll have everybody on a stage. It's just that not, not, not all at the same time. The goal, of course, is to eliminate the, the craziness uh, that we had in 2016, in which the stage was just too huge. Not enough people got a chance to talk. Uh, but it was just you know enough for 30-second sound bites each and so forth. Candidates will have to garner donations from at least 40,000 national contributors and poll consistently above 1% in three national polls or two national polls and one state poll, according to the announcement. They must secure donations with at least 200 unique donors per state or territory in 20-plus states or, uh, and or territories. They'll have until August 21st to get there. That's 48, 48 hours before the debate to meet the criteria. Polls conducted prior to July 1st won't count toward qualification. The standards appear designed to prevent the free-for-all circus-like debates that occurred in 2016. A smaller stage would benefit Ron DeSantis, who wants a one-on-one matchup with former President Donald Trump. The former president is welcoming a large field to splinter the opposition to him. In 2016, the GOP limited the candidates on stage to the top ten. The party did offer a second debate for candidates outside the top ten who were consistently being offered as choices in national polls. But the key to that story that I just shared with you, to me, the key line is, Committing, you cannot participate in the debates unless you commit to supporting the eventual Republican nominee. And I don't think that'll be a problem for anybody that's going to be in this in this field, except for one, the front runner, 
who doesn't even think he should have to debate because he is Donald Trump. President Trump has basically said, I don't feel like I need to do. Why should I debate? I look at the polls. I'm 40 points ahead. Nobody's even close to me. Why should I bother? Will he debate? And will he pledge to support the eventual nominee if it's not him? That is the question. It's 10 o'clock. We'll get a break here. We'll come back. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number two underway now on this, excuse me, <clears throat> on this froggy day, I guess. <laughs> a frog in the throat. Uh, on this Monday, it is the uh, fifth morning of the month of groom in the year of our Lord, 2023. We'll get back to that story in just a bit. But I'm going to go back to what I was talking about with Jim Jordan in hour number one, and that is uh, the FBI, among other things. Uh, the FBI is now a political weapon. It is being used by politicians, particularly those who are in power right now, uh, and it was even used by uh, one party when they were not in power. They were, it was used against the, uh, uh, against the candidate that was Donald Trump, then the president that was Donald Trump, and now it continues to be used against the American people. That's why uh, Congressman Jordan created the weaponization subcommittee in the uh, Judiciary Committee that he uh, chairs. And we saw what happened just a couple of weeks back. Four whistleblowers who are former FBI agents, who could not stand what was being done to the people by way of the agency, uh, actually spoke out against it and ended up having their careers and even their personal lives ruined because of it. The FBI is uh, is no longer, I believe, a trustworthy law enforcement operation. Uh, it's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very dangerous group that does not apply the law evenly. It applies the law politically, and that's what we have been finding out. And joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is uh, he's becoming a relatively frequent guest of mine between this program and True Blue uh, today. Uh, America's criminologist, Dr. Curry Myers, has been writing about this, uh, talking about the Justice Department putting politics over policing, and he's got some suggestions on how to fix the FBI. Dr. Myers, good to have you back. Back on our program, how are you this morning? Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. So let's start with the problem before we start talking about the fixes. You wrote uh, extensively about, um, and in fact, I'll ask you about something that uh, that I read as well. There is a proposal by the Department of Justice under the leadership of Merrick Garland, that and the FBI, of course, is Chris uh, is uh, Chris Ray to ban FBI agents from using community crime statistics in law enforcement. Now, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this. I just kind of talk about it. But um, one would think that crime statistics might give us an idea about where we need to point and position our resources. The FBI doesn't like that idea. Can you shine a light on that and tell us what's going on? Yes, I'm happy to. Unfortunately, that's the case. As, as you know uh, from our previous discussions, I... I'm a huge supporter of evidence-based policing. In fact, I believe that evidence-based policing is the is the best way to um, to administer your department and to use your labor resources effectively. 
Um, and it's and it's based on fact, and it's not based on feelings. And anytime we don't have all the data and all the information, we usually tend to make wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. And for the Department of Justice, an organization that has predominantly relied on previous facts and data and information, um, not being able to rely on that data is ex- an extreme problem. And I don't know how you can understand crime. I don't understand how you can understand trends. Um, I don't understand how you can deploy resources effectively if you are not paying attention to data um, from all over the country that you're seeing. And law enforcement at the local level is going to have probably the most exact data, especially if they implement evidence-based policing, Mm -hmm. because they're at the ground level. So what's the um, goal across then? the United States? I, I'm sorry, I apologize. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to excuse me, jump in during that pause. What's behind the decision making then? Everything you're saying right now is commonsensible to me, and I'm not even a cop, a retired cop like yourself or anybody else. I mean, it just makes sense. Everything you just described. So what is behind the decision to ignore all of that information and all of that data from local law enforcement and so forth? It is political correctness. <laughs> That's all it is. There isn't. I, I've, I've set. I've pondered, <laughs> I've, I've tried to be intellectual about, okay, what are the consequences? What are they trying to do? And the only thing I can come up with is that they believe that data today, real data, is not politically correct, and therefore they want to hide the data. And that's what's concerning, is that you can't have a fair and impartial justice system if you don't pay attention to the data that is before you. And and quite frankly, the data is starting to change. So we have some law enforcement agencies that are caving again to political correctness, and we're not actually collecting the kind of crime statistics we once did. Um, there are many uh, crimes that are, that are, that are law enforcement's not responding to now. As an example, burglaries in some areas Law enforcement says we don't have time to work burglary, so therefore we're not going to respond. Well, what does that do to potentially burglary data? Does it show a decline in burglaries when, in fact, there's not a decline in burglaries? There's just a a decline in law enforcement agencies responding and filing a report on that particular crime. Uh, When you have other crimes that are being ignored, they're still on the books as crimes. But if you have woke prosecutors that are saying, we're not, I'm not, we're not going to prosecute certain crimes, law enforcement in the field starts saying, well, why am I going to spend time on this? I'm going to ignore crime X, Y, and Z. So therefore, I'm not going to write reports in which the reports go into the Crime Information Bureau and, and go on up uh, into the FBI data reporting. And uh, so all the, all the information that we once used to have to make uh, information or make decisions on information are, are, are being done away with. And my biggest concern is the political correctness associated with race or gender. At some point, we're not going to be able to even identify crime by race or crime by gender. Uh, and some people may say, well, we don't want to. Why, do, why should we want to have race determined or crime determined by race by, or gender? Well, we need to understand crime in the community and what crimes are being committed where in what neighborhoods. So again, you can have the labor resources and uh, necessary 
to go fight that particular uh, uh, criminal enterprise. And so it, this, these decisions will affect, adversely affect, especially poorer neighborhoods that they don't have the ability to hire security guards. They don't have the ability to pressure police and come do patrols there because they may be wealthy. This is a horrible idea, and it shocks me to the very core um, that that an organization that I once held in high, high esteem um, has completely lost it. We are talking with uh, Dr. Curry Myers. Dr. Myers is a 35-year veteran. He's a retired sheriff, but he's uh, got 35 years of professional experience in law enforcement at the local, state, and federal level. He's also a Ph.D. criminologist. So when you I, you finally hit on it, I was going to ask you, <clears throat> when you say political correctness, let's be more precise. We're talking about race here. And and, and as, a, as an example of what you're talking about, I want to I read this tweet from the Berkeley Scanner from uh, four days ago. Breaking. We've learned that an Alameda County Superior Court judge was robbed at gunpoint of his Rolex this morning, just blocks from Oakland's main courthouse. Those responsible were described as three young men, 18 to 22, in a light colored Hyundai. End quote. Now, what jumps out at you about that, Dr. Myers? It's not, an, it's not enough information for the public to decide what these individuals may look like. Right. I mean, they they, and, they and, saw and fit to point, they saw fit it, to report the color of the car, but not the color of the the men. I mean, if if you say that they're three young white men, then any black persons that are seen by police officers investigating here are automatically excluded from uh you know from from their attention. If they say that they were they were black men, then anybody who's white would be excluded. It kind of narrows down the search grid, doesn't it? If we know what race they are, but they go out of their way to not mention the race of the perpetrators involved for the reasons you were just describing. And it sounds crazy, but at some point they're going to say, they're not going to even say young men at some point. At some point they're not going to even give out the ages. It's going to be just three people um, attack the judge in a white high How do we catch bad guys if we can't identify? I mean, first of all, what you said, they're not going to patrol, they're not going to look for, they're not going to respond, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to work burglaries, like you said, for all of these reasons. And now they're certainly not going to do it. And, and if they do catch them, I'll give you another follow-up to that. Did you see the Lululemon sto- story out of Atlanta from last week? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, two individuals, for those who don't know, robbed a Lululemon store, one of these broad daylight shoplifting sprees where they just went in there and started collecting thousands, because you look at the overpriced merchandise there, literally thousands of dollars worth of overpriced clothing. And um, uh, an individual, uh, an assistant manager, came out and told them to get out of here, and they basically cursed at her, took some more stuff, and left. She called the police after they drove away. She didn't try to stop them, obviously, but she called the police afterwards. They were fired. She and her coworker were fired for calling the police. And the belief is because the, the Lululemon store does not want Lululemon to be associated as being racist if you call the police on black, uh, black uh, shoplifters. Um, and so if, if race and, and, and identity politics, if you will, are at the core of how we respond to and fight back against crime, Dr. Myers, then, then we can't fight back against crime ever, can we? No, not at all. In fact, in that Lululemon case, the if if you listen to the uh, the audio which I did, mm-hmm. um, she almost spoke to them like a stray dog coming in, saying, "Get out, get out!" You know, "Hey, what are you doing in here? Get out!" And it's because 
uh, what what people don't realize is that's like the fifth time they've actually seen these people, these individuals, who have stolen from that individual store. And so there's a backstory to this thing that a lot of people don't realize. It's, it's like they're looking at it like once again, here are these two guys that come in. And it's like get out of here. Get what you know. What are you doing here again? Get out. Get out. And they turn around and they fire these employees. Um, and, and and that's the reason shoplifting is a billion dollar business now. We we have this and we have this occurring in mass numbers. Uh, there used to be shoplifting that was done by the individual, maybe two at the most. But we have a whole whole new method of, of criminal intention now that we never used to see, which is more mob-related, and it's more, they're not even hiding it. You know, shoplifting used to be you put something under your coat or put something down in your pants or whatever it used to be. Now they're just coming in and they're being brazen. And, and and they're and they're taking these things, mm-hmm. and so and then you and then you throw the media on top of this as well, Bob. And, and a big concern is if law enforcement did put out, uh, be on the lookout, for instance, and said um, we're looking for a white male between the ages of 25 and 30 that has red hair, um, that is dressed in shorts and a t-shirt, a t-shirt, um, and um, we do have. Uh, suspect information on him. He has been arrested before, and we're going to put out a mugshot. There are the media is now saying that mugshots um, are not recommended to be put out, and and other information is not recommended to be put out uh, because it could uh, contaminate the story and and not be fair to the to the to the people that it represents. And so, but mugshots are now. Uh, it used to be we would have mugshots. Hey, we know who this person is. Here's the mugshot. And now we have media, um, especially in print media and the Internet, saying, nope, that's prejudicial. We don't want to put out that information. It's, it's incredible put out a how you can fight crime. Of the individual you're seeking. Uh, it's it's just that's it, it's impossible to understand. It's impossible to comprehend. It's more impossible to defend such policies. Doctor Curry Myers is my guest. He is a Ph.D. criminologist, a longtime veteran, a law enforcement officer. Let's move to your article that you wrote on your Substack, which will uh, direct people to. It's Doctor Curry Myers, C U R R I E Myers, M Y E R S. Doctor Curry Myers. dot Substack. dot com, uh, in which we talk about how to fix the broken system within the FBI. Uh, now, again, we're talking specifically about a lot of different crime stories that are not all FBI-related, but uh, the FBI, as we talked about, you know, relies upon local policing and cooperation and so forth. So uh, the FBI is broken. The FBI has been corrupted. The FBI has been weaponized, as we have talked about, uh, against the people rather than serving them. So you've got a seven-point plan, a prescription, if you will, to fix things laid on us. And whenever I write, I, I don't usually complain. I usually offer solutions um, whenever I write about things. So this is a particular case where the FBI, there are some things that can be fixed. And the, the first and foremost one is mission and scope. Um, the key issues with the FBI dysfunction is associated with the change of mission and scope. And, and under Robert Mueller in 2002, right after 9-11 occurred, uh, there was a shift of the FBI to becoming more of an intelligence gathering agency, uh, which has ended up being a huge mistake. Anytime you have an, an organization that primarily fo- focuses on intelligence gathering, but they have the badge and the power of arrest behind them, that could lead to problematic behavior. 
Um, our, our founding fathers, in my opinion, never envisioned a nationalized police force that would be used for intelligence gathering. I just don't think they would ever even understand. They, they never wanted a nationalized police force to begin with. But one that has a primary function as intelligence gathering, uh, they would be flipping over in their graves. So they need to go back to their original mission, which is the investigation and support to law enforcement, the violent crime, organized crime, white-collar crime, cyber crime, which continues to be a huge issue, and counterterrorism. The other thing is there needs to be guardrails on mission creep. Any large federal bureaucracies, as, as you're aware, will they will have uh, extension or gradual broadening of their original objectives of their mission and organization. So there's got to be, Congress has got to put guardrails and limitations, primarily financially, uh, that, it, that prevents the FBI from exceeding their statutory authority under their particular statutes in which they exist. Uh, the other is command and control. The FBI has deep organizational inefficiencies right now in command and control. It's a very heavy, uh, top-down approach to federal organization with too much power in Washington, D.C. And the way to minimize that is we need to not have it located in Washington, D.C., but try to expand it throughout the United States. I'm recommending that they follow the U.S. Marshals uh, model, um, if you're familiar with the U.S. Marshals, um, they have an organization which comprises of a director appointed by the president, um, an assistant director, and, of course, support people in Washington, D.C. But they have 94 U.S. Marshals across the United States in every federal district that's appointed by the president of the United States and, assi and assigned to those districts. And then there's deputy marshals that work for those particular districts. And that would make it difficult for a Washington, D.C. headquarters. We're seeing a lot of things. If you talk to FBI agents in the field, we're seeing a lot of things that are, are more of the political cases that are being pushed down from the Washington, D.C. offices as opposed to coming to the field offices. Uh, the other is the term of the FBI director. Um, we naturally never want another J. Edgar Hoover type situation. And uh, who was, for 47 years, he, he ran the FBI, and you never want to have somebody that much power. Well, of course, Congress said after he died in office, they said we need to prevent this. Uh, so we're still going to have a presidential appointment, but we're also going to have a 10-year appointment associated with that presidential appointment. Um, I think that it needs to be, go, be reduced down to a six-year appointment with no reappointments. Um, I think you have to limit subjective FBI charges. And a lot of people may, may not realize there's some charges called lying to an FBI agent or lying to a federal agent. Um, it's a serious matter to lie under oath or lie towards material facts and in investigation. Um, but making a false statement to a federal investigator should require way more than a lie. It should be uh, required demonstrating that such a statement was actually material to the underlying investigation. If you look a lot of a lot of cases, um, uh, the recent general that was um, uh, that worked for um, President Trump is an example. Uh, from he was in a political appointee, mm -hmm. um, he suffered from this greatly and, and ended Talk up. About General Flynn, uh, General Flynn, excuse me, mm -hmm. and he was he ended up having his charges dismissed, but. When you look at the FBI agents who actually did the interview of General Flynn, 
they even said, we don't think there's enough information here to charge, but, and yet they went ahead and charged him um, with lying to um, FBI agents. Um, and then the last ones are uh, having an FBI inspector general. Not There's inspector generals within the Department of Justice, but there needs to be an a, a inspector general assigned, almost like an ombudsman that represents the public um, in these large federal organizations. And last but not least, Bob, Federal oversight means congressional oversight, and Congress has to take a serious look at whether or not they are truly overseeing these law enforcement, federal law enforcement agencies to ensure the public is being safe and that they're doing their jobs. Because this is, the FBI is well known, but they're actually a very small agency. Uh, if you want to look at something that I'm concerned with as well, the, the the Department of Homeland Security. It is a leviathan, huge bureaucratic organization that has swallowed up many previous um, federal agencies and in, in which I don't think, the, again, the Founding Fathers ever envisioned a Department of Homeland Security that would have troops on the ground throughout the United States in many different areas. And the, the DHS they have hardworking agents in the field, just like the FBI. So I'm not talking about the field of people. But when you think about the abuses that mm-hmm. could occur in these large federal law enforcement agencies, uh, it could really weaponize law enforcement that, it, to, to areas that we would, would have never envisioned in the past. Well, this is some really, really interesting information. I want to steer people again to your uh, to your Substack, Doctor Curry Myers, and uh, and learn and read a little bit more. All of those are are very important points, particularly congressional oversight. Although, of course, those who try to provide oversight on behalf of the people uh, are the ones who are accused of being political rather than the FBI being political itself. But that's, of course, uh, sure. the nature of this beast. Doctor Curry Myers, uh, go to their website. It's Doctor Curry C U R R I E Myers M Y E R S dot Substack dot com and uh, read this tremendous work. Dr. Myers, keep up the good work. Thank you so much for what you do on behalf of law enforcement and the people who rely upon it for protection. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 10.30 news time. We took it all the way to the bottom. Let's catch up right now on Always Right Radio. Welcome back to Always Radio on The Answer. Okay, it's 1037. Good Monday morning to you. Thanks for being with us. Want to hear from you now. Got uh, guest, uh, guest free the rest of the way. So 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Easy way to get on the program. You want to respond to some of what we've talked about already with uh, Jim Jordan in the first hour, with Dr. Curry Myers in the last half hour. I certainly welcome your thoughts on that. We have a lot of other things to discuss as well. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hit one of those right now. <clears throat> I mentioned to you a few moments ago about the, uh, actually about a half an hour ago now, so apologies, about the uh, first GOP primary debate scheduled about two months away, a little more. It's uh, April, uh, August uh, 23rd, and the rules have been set by the RNC in terms of how to qualify for one of those debates. It involves a certain number of supporters, a certain amount of donations, a certain number of states, <clears throat> and so forth. It also requires anybody who... Um, wants to participate in the debate to pledge, take a pledge, to support the eventual nominee, even if it's not oneself. 
And I think that's probably pretty easy for everybody in that field to do, except for former President Trump, who has said, I don't even need to debate. He basically thinks he should be uh, crowned as the uh, nominee for the Republican Party without any uh, objection, that everybody else should step away, uh, because he's got a massive lead in the polls, which he does, and uh, he's a former president, which he is, and he's beloved by a massive number of people in the base, which, which he is. Maybe he's right. Maybe he shouldn't have to debate. But that's not generally speaking how this works. But if he doesn't think he should have to debate, because nobody else should be entitled to the stage with him, do you think he should, or do you think he will support the eventual nominee? What if somebody rises up and wins some of these primaries that are going to be starting uh, in Iowa or New Hampshire, wherever the case might be, and suddenly it's a real race now, and he may not get it? Will he actually support them, or will he decide to go and run as a third party? Ron is independent because he's going to bring 74 million voters potentially with him. So um, it's it really throws things into flux. Another presidential candidate that I want to talk about right now is Vivek Ramaswamy. He's the entrepreneur. He is a billionaire. He is extremely successful. His uh, book, Woke Inc., is, uh, is, is extremely successful. We've had him on this program. But I think Vivek Ramaswamy made a huge mistake. He was doing an interview with ABC. ABC's this week. Uh, uh, was it Saturday, I guess, Saturday or Sunday, whatever. <clears throat> and he was asked about trans people in the military. And he gave an answer that I think he thought would be the right answer, and he thought probably would be supported by most people. And I think there's a huge problem with this. Would you reinstate the ban on transgender members of the military? I would not reinstate a ban on transgender members. I would, however, be very clear that for kids... That's where my policies are very focused. We should not be foisting this ideology onto children. But, but you would not ban transgender members of the military? I would not. Okay. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. Almost a disqualifying mistake from Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think has been very much on point with everything he's discussed thus far in his campaign, which is, you know, it's a long shot campaign. He's not an elected official. He's, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's just very, very smart. But he made a very, very huge error here. Trans people should not be serving in the military. Not now, not ever. Why? Bigotry? No. Common sense. Reason. Unit cohesion. Psychiatric and psychological facts. What I mean is this. Gender dysphoria is classified as a psychological disorder, right? Psychological disorders are grounds for removal or rejection by the military, period, point blank. That's it. The reality of the situation is we are told by the trans community and the medical community that supports them that not affirming trans people's identities um, causes them to have a huge, huge spike in suicidal ideation. All right? <clears throat> Many of them think about wanting to kill themselves. Many of them do if they don't get the uh, identification that they prefer. Yet, when trans people do transition and go through the uh, hormones and the blockers and the surgeries and so forth, the suicide rate is even higher. It's even higher because of the regret that they have for what they did by mutilating their bodies and suffering from infections and lifelong, just catastrophic medical problems. 
They're killing themselves. So if you've got a classification of people, the quote-unquote trans community, and the classification of people thinks about killing themselves if they don't get affirmed as what they want to be, and then when they do get affirmed and they actually go through with the surgery, they kill themselves even more there. And I'm not making light of this in any way. I'm being 100% serious. If suicide is a legitimate cause for concern in the trans community, both pre- and post-transition, that means they're not eligible for the military. Psychological disorders are grounds for being rejected if you try to enlist in the military and removal if you are already in the military. So no, no, Vivek, you made a massive error in judgment there. You're trying to not, you know, tick off one part of the community, one part of the voting population and so forth. You're looking for some polling traction. No, I wouldn't ban. I I just don't want trans people. You know, his argument is, Similar to the argument that I make and many others do, that if you want to live your life, go live your life as an adult, as a, as a queer adult, as a trans adult, as a non-binary adult, or whatever other weird delusions you want to go come up with, fine, go do your thing. If you want to have drag shows in adult spaces, go do your thing. If you want to have your BDSM stuff, uh, go ahead and do your thing. Just keep kids out of it. That's, that's been our, our mission here. Once they started bringing this into the classrooms and drag queens into the libraries and all these other things, that's when this massive pushback began. And it sounded like that's what Vivek was trying to do here. It's like, you know what? No, my thing here is just, you know, it shouldn't involve our kids. He was trying to, to kind of use that same platform, that same position. But he made a mistake here because we weren't just talking about going to live your life. We're talking about serving in the United States military. A place where unit cohesion matters. A place where, again, I've pointed this out in the past. They shave your head in basic training for a reason. They make you wear the same uniform for a reason. Everybody is supposed to be alike. The U.S. military is not a place for diversity experimentation. It's a place where diversity goes out the window and everybody is treated the same and everybody has to surrender their own personal identity and accept U.S. soldier, U.S. sailor, U.S. marine, U.S. airman, whatever it is you're you're part of. So no, I think Vivek Ramaswamy made a huge mistake there. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten. If you want to get in, let's do this. Lenny is in um, Highland Heights. Lenny, you're on the air. Hi there. Highway. You know when you were discussing with your last guest <clears throat> about how shoplifting changed. Shoplifting changed, didn't change. People are starting to engage in active looting. It's no, it's, it's no different than any other looting. A group of people descend on a business, intimidate the staff, and steal the place blind. That's not shoplifting. That is looting. You're right. You're 100% right. That terminology matters. Shoplifting is when you try to get away with something and you hope nobody sees you. You slip that item inside your jacket or you go in and change in the uh, changing room and you put a, yep. a shirt on underneath your actual clothes. You know, you're, th- that's shoplifting. You're right. This is straight-up looting. This is breaking in. I know you have cameras on me. <clears throat> I know that there's broad daylight, and I know we can be identified. We're doing it anyway because you're not going to do anything to stop us, and that is exactly right. Lenny, you're spot on. All righty, Bob. Have a good day. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate the call. He's right. Looting is 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 
pervasive in all of these cities. Why do you think stores are shutting down? I mean, we're talking about businesses that have been thriving for years and years and years, going out of business because they're losing more through the looting, we'll call it that, or stealing, uh, than they can make in profit. They just can't stay open. And nobody seems to give a rip. Why? Because of what Dr. Myers was talking about. Political correctness, which was, you know, kind of a politically correct way of saying equity. The reality is, and the crime statistics show it, that the overwhelming number of violent crimes and property crimes that are committed are committed in the African-American community by the African-American community. And if we have all of those people being arrested when they do those things, the jails and the prisons are going to look really, really bad because they're going to be overwhelmingly African-American. And that's not equitable. That doesn't look good. That looks like a systemically racist society just locking up people for the color of their skin. And we can't have that. That's why we're not allowed to call and report thefts to the police. That's why police, if they do get a call, aren't coming. They don't want. That's why if they do come, prosecutors aren't pushing the charges. And that's why even if they do push the charges, judges are not locking up. We can't, I mean, it's in every step of the system. Race and identity matter more than laws and victims and civilians and those who need protected and served. That's the reality of it. Dan is in uh, Middleburg Heights next. Hi, Dan. You're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Dan. Uh, uh, I wanted to bring up one more time here. The last couple times I called you, I was insisting, I guess, that with the, uh, the Attorney General, the FBI, and our Justice Department, mm-hmm. we need to correct who's reporting to who. And your prior, your, your last guest actually answered what I've been trying to suggest to you the last couple times. They need, those departments have to report to the House of Representatives and be appointed by them, not the executive branch. It was incorrect because... You end up what we're living now in tyranny because they're using those departments as a police department for the executive branch. It wouldn't happen if all those were appointed through the legislature. Then you could do something about it and throw people in jail. They're doing what they're doing to us. And that's what your guest said basically at the end of his, uh, you know, his time there. He said he wanted to see the House of Representatives appointing these people. See, because the Justice Department never was in the Constitution and didn't become exist until 1870, along with an attorney general, and the FBI didn't arrive until the 30s. And uh, that's why I want to, you know, hope that you would understand if you had... But but you know what, no no matter how many many times you say this, Dan, it's not reality. It's just not reality, and it's not not going to happen. It's It's not going to change. But it's not going to change. I mean, I don't understand what, why, why, you're, why you're so laser-locked on this. Well, I don't want the, the country is, to go down the drain of these people. Well, neither do I. Neither do I, obviously. Yeah. But the reality is, again, you are yeah. still going to have political appointees, whether they're appointed by uh, corrupt members of Congress or, or, or a ridiculously corrupt president. Ooh. If you appoint the, the, the FBI uh, director and you appoint the... Um, you know the attorney general from the legislative branch or the uh, or the executive branch. You still are going to be subject to their whims, and you're still going to have people who who are going to vote for them based on their part, their parties. Can I just follow up on that as a retort? Then sure. Your guest 
said that they wanted to have 10 years for the director, and he says he wanted six where you couldn't be reappointed. But the problem we have... I like have, that idea, personally. Well, that's, that's what Thomas Jefferson was like. Yeah, you never get appointed again, but let me get back to the House. They're elected every two years. You can get rid of those people making bad appointments. Me and you are sitting here now. i got to wait another year and a half for Biden to sit here in the office because he's the guy doing the appointing or who was ever pulling his strings. You understand? It's He's in there four years. you got to wait. I don't have time to wait four years. Well, and by the way, just to be clear what Dr. Meyer said, and I'll read it from specifically his okay. substack in point number seven. He said, I hope Congress- I didn't state it incorrectly. But well, no, I mean, he, 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 this is what it says in a substack. He says, Congressional oh, okay. Oversight. Final, cause that's what I asked him to read to us, his seven-point plan. And number okay. seven was Congressional Oversight. Finally and foremost, Congress has the responsibility to provide oversight over federal agencies. This yes. is most importantly true when it comes to federal agencies that have the powers to investigate, detain, and arrest American citizens. Oh, I so, agree with that. So, yeah, but, I mean, that, that has nothing to do with appointing. That is well, overseeing. Because and, appointing, and Congress does oversee. That's, hell, that's what the Oversight Committee is for. But they can make a statute that changes all that and takes it out of the executive branch that's what i'm trying to say that's i know you keep saying it but you keep you keep saying something that is never going to change oh uh, you're and probably it, right there and quite frankly i don't it. see it being a huge difference either i mean you know you know the you know the congress turns over just about every two years anyway Everybody knows that. Whenever there's, you know, that's how that's how uh, you know we just uh, after Biden in Biden's first midterm election, of course, it went from Repu- Democrat to Republican, the party out of power almost all in terms of the executive. It's a form of a tournament. Yeah, uh, and 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 so every two years it's going to turn back to the Democrats anyway. So if you have them appointing, well, I'm an FBI not worried director, about that. Well, you just said you wanted to, didn't want to wait four years for a new president to appoint a new director, and, and well, you want Congress to do it. And I'm saying every two years it's going to be flipped around anyway. But it, it doesn't have to go Democrat. It's only people have to pay attention to what's going on. Well, you That's could say the same thing. Say. You could say the same thing about the presidential elections, Dan. No. You, you elect the wrong guy, you're in for a bad, a bad, a bad period of time with uh, with his bad appointees, whether well, they be FBI directors, attorneys general, or 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 in booty judges' cases, transportation secretaries. I, I mean, you're it's, in. <laughs> it's not me, Bob. I'm just reporting what the how the first five presidents were elected to this country. They okay. were appointed. They okay. weren't elected by you or me. Okay. So do you want to go back okay. to that? Do you want to go back to that? Yes, that's what I would like. You're better off for presidents to be appointed to presidents to be appointed by the Congress. Well, it's it's no, it's by the, the electoral college. But if they don't have the sense of majority, then it is the Congress. It's in the Constitution to this day. Okay, the well, Congress so, with one vote each state would elect the president, not me or you. Okay, that, and, go read the. Go read the Constitution. Okay. I'm not trying to be argumentative. No, no, no. But but you are you are you are you are talking about things, and you're repetitive on this, Dan. About things that are never going to go back. You're not going to go back to appointing. You're not going to go back to appointing presidents from Congress. You're also not going to go to a, to a place well, where the the FBI director and the Attorney General are 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 appointed well, by the Congress either. The reality is the executive branch has that authority, and it's up to the Congress. This is the system of checks and balances to make sure that the people who are chosen are following the law and following the Constitution. And that's what we need to get better at. Our Congress doesn't have to pick the people, but they have to be responsible for making sure they're doing their jobs or the power through the power of impeachment getting rid of those individuals. 
An impeachment well, of a guy like Merrick Garland, who has weaponized the, uh, sure. you know, the FBI, for example, and quite frankly, the entire Department of Justice, is something that I would get behind and I think the Congress could do. But we can't even get them to agree on that. Well, that's uh, our big problem, Bob, because they're not doing anything. <laughs> no, they're not. Sadly, they're not. And, and uh, that's why <clears throat> you got me calling your show trying to suggest how to correct this. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a tough cookie to crack. It is indeed. Thank you, Dan, for the call. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay. God bless. Thanks for the call. Thanks for being such a loyal listener. Um, but like I said, I don't think we're going anywhere with that. We're going to have to deal with this another way. It's 1055 on Always Right Radio. All right, friends, Bob France here for Harry Buffalo on Great Northern Boulevard in North Olmstead. If you don't have lunch plans today, why don't you think about it? Think about heading out. It's what? It's almost lunchtime. What do you say we get out to Harry Buffalo? Take advantage of the phenomenal food and have a great time, too. You know, sports betting is available now at Harry Buffalo as well. Ever since it became legal in Ohio, it became available at Harry Buffalo. And let me invite you to happy hour from 4 to 7 p.m. There's a new food special every day. Today's special is my favorite. It's wing day. 75-cent traditional wings from 4 to 7, along with specials on drinks like 3 bucks for craft pints, domestic talls, well drinks, and house wines. It's always a great time. If you go at lunchtime, happy hour time, or dinner time, when it's Harry Buffalo time, on Great Northern Bowl. Of Always Right Radio is brought to you by KeepingMedicareSimple.com and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Ten minutes after 11 o'clock and hour number three is underway on this Monday. It is the fifth morning of the month of groom in the year of our Lord 2023. And uh, we've had a couple of great conversations already. Great conversation with Jim Jordan to start our show. He was in early today at about uh, five minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock. Uh, if you missed it, you, sh- you can uh, go back and catch that at whkradio.com. Go to our podcast page there. Then we also spoke with Dr. Curry Myers, America's sheriff, if you will. And uh, Dr. Myers and I talked about violent crime in America and why it is uh, that the FBI isn't allowed to consider violent crime and violent crime stats when it comes to investigations. It's a really, really interesting dilemma, except that it's not. It's very easy to figure out and very easy to follow. It's about DIE. It's about diversity, inclusion, and equity. Those on the Marxist left, the cultural Marxists on the American left, want to see diversity and inclusion and equity in everything, including 
crime, except they don't bother considering the fact whether or not uh, crime is committed at an equitable rate. They don't bother to discover if crime is committed uh, by an equal number of diverse people. If crime is committed overwhelmingly by one particular group of people, it has to be treated as such. But they won't allow it because of diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's really quite a remarkable thing. But we had a great conversation with Dr. Myers about that. Again, if you missed that, find that at whkradio.com. I also was speaking about Vivek Ramaswamy last uh, segment. Vivek, excuse me. Vivek Ramaswamy said that he would not, in an interview, he, of course, is a presidential candidate, he would not um, ban trans people from serving in the United States military. And it just really, really kind of makes me uh, scratch my head. Military disorders are grounds for disqualification from consideration for military service. Psychological disorders, mental disorders are grounds from dis- for disqualification. I'm looking right now at Operation Military, uh, 20 health conditions that may allow you not to join the uh, United States military. In general, the U.S. Armed Forces tries to support people from all backgrounds with a variety of conditions. No one is perfect, they say. We all have issues. But the concern for safety is, is paramount, obviously. So looking at the list of medical conditions that can affect military service, condition number one, possibly disqualifying depression. Number two, disqualifying bipolar disorder. Um, we'll skip past some of the physical ones, like herpes is number three, HIV AIDS is number four, eyesight issues. Now we get to number six, anxiety disorders, mental illnesses, um, Asperger's. Let's see, Getting I'm, I'm just sticking with the um, psychological disorders, PTSD. What else do we have? I'm getting there's heart conditions, bunions, arthritis, celiac disease, and hearing issues. Okay, so about four or five of the top twenty um, conditions that would exclude you from military service are psychological disorders. Well, guess what? Gender dysphoria is classified as. It's a psychological disorder. It's obviously not a physical disorder. It's a psychological disorder. And people with psychological disorders don't go into the military because it's unsafe. And if the massive number of, uh, let me rephrase, the massive percentage that they are telling us of trans young people are suicidal if they don't get to transition, and then they're even more suicidal after they transition, it sounds like a pretty good reason to keep these people away from military units and weapons. Don't you think? I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to put people who have severe psychological conditions. Uh, the best way to protect a country is to put them in charge of America's or as a part of America's military. But that's just me. So if you want to kick that around, too, you can do so at 216-901-0945 and 888 Now, to that issue about the psychological conditions of gender dysphoria, I want to do two things here. I want to share with you um, a question and ask your opinion of it. And I'm going to give you a little bit of audio from somebody who has had enough. Why is it, this is the question, why is it that today's Marxist left is so dedicated to DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity, in everything except thought, except ideology? 
or ideas. Why? When it comes to skin color, diversity and inclusion must rule the day. People should be hired based on their skin color, based on their sexual identity, based on their sexual orientation. People should be admitted to colleges based on their sex or their gender. Because diversity, because inclusion, because equity. But what about diversity and inclusion and equity of thought? Shouldn't there be on a place where college campuses are considered to be uh, truth-seeking institutions, right? This is what they do. They all say this. College and higher education is about the pursuit of truth. Academia, in general, is, is about the pursuit of facts and truths and understanding them and exploring them. Yet, the only schools of thought that are allowed on these campuses are left-wing Marxist, socialist, communist schools of thought, regardless of truth. There's an article in the far-left-wing Ohio Capital Journal I'm looking at right now, flipping out over Senate Bill 117 here in the state of Ohio. Senate Bill 117 would create the Salmon P. Chase Center for Civics, Culture, and Society at The Ohio State University and the Institute of American Constitutional Thought and Leadership at the University of Toledo's College of Law. And the headline of the story, Students and Professors Speak Out Against Ohio Bill That Would Create Intellectual Diversity Centers. You know, it's staggering that it exists, this Extraordinary double standard, this hypocrisy. But it's even more staggering that they don't care if they say it out loud now. They are so married to themselves, no pun intended, but they're so married to themselves and their ideas that they don't feel like they can be stopped anymore. They can just say it out loud and not even have to keep this uh, under the cloak of darkness They can just say, we don't want intellectual diversity. We want our left-wing echo chamber in every auditorium and lecture hall on college campuses in this country. This is the way the story is told by the Ohio Capital Journal. Again, a far left-wing news, and I'll use that in air quotes, uh, publication. University of Toledo law students and Ohio State University professors spoke out in opposition against a bill that would create new centers at both universities that would expand and affirm what sponsors deem intellectual diversity. (laughs) Senate Bill 117 would create the Salmon P. Chase Center for Civics, Culture, and Society. I told you about that, as well as the American Constitutional Thought and Leadership at the University of Toledo's College of Law. Eleven people submitted opponent testimony, and uh, there was one interested party for SB 117 at last Wednesday's Senate Workforce and Higher Education Committee meeting. There was little questioning from the five-person committee. The bill was introduced by Senator Rob McCauley of Napoleon and Senator Jerry Serino, whom we had on, who also introduced a massive higher education bill that would overhaul college campuses that recently passed in the Senate. SB 117 would give a million bucks to the University of Toledo in fiscal year 2024, two million for 25, and five million for Ohio State in 24 and 25 for completion of their centers. 
$5 million during those two years would pay Ohio State's full in-state tuition costs for 400 students each year of the biennium, said Steve Maccabee, an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati, speaking on behalf of the Ohio Conference uh, American Association of University Professors. At a time when college affordability is a significant concern for Ohio families, we owe it to Ohioans to be sure that the funds allocated by the legislature are being spent in ways that maximize their positive impact. End quote. And it's only a positive impact, of course, if the money goes to hiring more left-wing professors and forcing more left-wing ideology down the throats and into the brains of their captive students who are paying to be indoctrinated, not educated. We remain deeply concerned that attempts by the General Assembly to override the autonomy of our colleges and universities will have many unintended consequences that damage, not enhance, the climate of free inquiry on our campuses and the quality of education that is offered to our students, end quote. I wish I had a soundtrack here of a pl- of a laughter, you know, like a laugh track like they used to do on all the sitcoms. Does anybody still watch sitcoms? I don't know. But I feel like I need the laugh track there because that is just comical. The idea that the climate of free inquiry even exists on campuses today is a joke. It is, it is comical. The quality of education, it, there is no education when it is indeed littered with indoctrination. UT Law professor Lee Strang first got the idea for the Institute in 2019, sees this not only as a way to train, a better train future lawyers, but a recruiting tool for the university. But three UT students don't see it that way, and this deserves a news story in the Ohio Capital Journal. Megan Anderson, a third-year UT Law student, said she wouldn't have picked UT if the proposed institution was in place. Oh, no, we can't allow diversity of thought to occur in our university, diversity of thought and intellectual diversity in our, in our law school. I wouldn't have come if I'd have known you were going to like actually allow other people to say things that I disagree with. Again, this is comical. Why would the pure existence of this center turn off a student in the first place, asked Jerry Serino, one of the bill's sponsors. It's a great question. It shouldn't. If you are indeed in a university of higher learning, an institution of higher learning, and, and in the pursuit of truth. Anderson said students go to law school to make the world a better place, and this institution is not helping with that. Helping, making me listen to and hear other ideas that are different from my own. That's not helping me be a better lawyer. The narrowly focused point, uh, or I'm sorry, narrowly po- pointed focus, beg your pardon, I'm not really illiterate, uh, of SB 117 fails to address the areas of law where we face significant shortages in specialized professors, such as family law, criminal law, administrative law, and estate law. She said she also worries that the College of Law will be forced to absorb funding for the Institute once the initial money runs out. Maybe so. Benjamin Noah Woods, a third-year law student, said the Institute would not prepare students for the bar exam. This, this is going to teach us indoctrination of conservative Christian nationalist interpretations of our Constitution, he said. Clearly, he is a third-year guy because for three years he has been absorbing left-wing orthodoxy and forced to regurgitate it 
without any sort of pushback or any sort of presentation of counter-information or information that runs counter to his viewpoints. Now that some might come, he does not handle that. Holy cow, conservative interpretations of the Constitution? We can't have that. At Ohio State, Richard Fletcher, an associate professor, said SB 117 is a destructive power grab to control what is being taught at universities and by whom. And doggone it, we won't allow any destructive power grabs to happen at our universities unless we're the ones creating the destruction and grabbing the power. Nobody else is allowed to have a taste. Here we have arrived at the end game, said Professor Fletcher. Universities being told what they can teach and how they should teach. Yet it is the students who suffer when their education is gerrymandered in this way. These people and their hypocrisy, honestly, a little bit too far for me to even grasp. This is, I mean, I can't wrap my brain around this. They have been polluting and 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 urinating into the into the skulls of children, our our young adults who go into these colleges without any pushback whatsoever from the right for decades. And they're now daring to say if, we, if there's one institution on campus that brings you diversity of intellectual thought, that's gonna be harmful to the kids. The Chase Center would be an independent academic unit, would have a director that would report directly to the provost and university president. Uh, what it does not look like as proposed to anything approximating a center or institute as they currently operate at OSU in the social sciences and liberal arts. It would also not operate in keeping with how the vast majority of centers and institutes, exactly, and institutes work on virtually all U.S. campuses. That's exactly the point. Professor Dunderhead, that's exactly the point. It would operate differently than the way things are operated operated now, which is 100% left-wing. It would operate with students being given a place to find other ideas, a place to hear the other side. A constitutional interpret, excuse me, a conservative uh, uh, interpretation of a constitutional point, as opposed to the left-wing version, which generally results in what? Take that out. Remove that from the Constitution. We don't like it. It's a living body. It's a living document that should change with the times, not one that should be viewed and regarded and interpreted interpreted um, through originalism, which, by the way, is exactly how it should be viewed. And now that somebody wants to come out of campuses and actually say that, now they're freaking out. Now they're now they're having uh, their little collective, uh, little mini uh, temper tantrums, their little triggers. I welcome your thoughts. 216-901-0945, I've got some audio for you you're going to want to hear next. Stay here on Always Right Radio. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my Enlightening the sleeping masses, stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, then. It's 1133. Thanks so much for being with us. So, um, Megyn Kelly used to work for Fox, as you know. 
She uh, left Fox to go to NBC. It was a disaster there. She felt totally out of place, and they ran her out of there as soon as they could. They made up things about her in order to get rid of her. It's probably the best thing in the world for her. She now hosts her own program on Sirius XM. And she's very, it's very popular. It's very popular. And it's very good. Megyn Kelly um, did a program, I believe it was on Friday, and I want to share this with you, a portion of it anyway, because I think it's extraordinarily important. To hear people have that light bulb go off on, you know, above their head. To hear people come to the realization that they're not helping anyone by supporting this ridiculous, this ridiculous uh, uh, trans movement. They're not helping anybody. They may want to be inclusive and they may want to be nice and they may, they may want to be you know, positive and so on and so forth, but at the end of the day, it's only going to lead to something, some, something really, quite frankly, awful. Megyn Kelly was one of them. She admitted this on her program. And I want you to hear it, because I want it to inspire you to do the same exact thing. People ask me all the time. Even people ask, you know, Elon Musk, what do you do when people tell you what their pronouns are? Do you use their pronouns? And he says, yeah, of course, just being polite. There's something about being polite that also becomes being damaging. And that's what Megyn Kelly found out. This is why I will never use any of these fake words. I will not use the incorrect pronouns when it comes to plural or singular. I will not use made-up words. I will not do any of it. And there's a reason for it. Megyn Kelly finally had that light bulb moment for her, and I want you to hear her talk about it. Why I'm done with preferred pronouns. I was an early proponent of using preferred pronouns as far back as the early 2000s, of saying she when I knew the truth was he. It seemed harmless, and I had no wish to cause offense. Trans people were tortured enough, it seemed to me, by nature of their dysphoria and society's disdain for them in general. So I complied. I went along with it. I didn't see the harm. By 2016, we were debating bills to stop trans access to certain bathrooms, which I covered from the news desk, siding with the trans community. How does it affect our lives as women if here or there a trans person uses a stall in our bathroom? These people aren't bothering anyone. Why wouldn't we accommodate them? I didn't see the harm. In 2018, while at NBC, I hosted shows on trans people, one of which had a segment on trans kids. I led the audience in cheering for them, encouraging them to own who they are. I used approved terms like gender-affirming care for medicinal gender manipulations, cis to refer to natural-born women and men, assigned male at birth, instead of born male. I smiled and listened politely as a guest told me, gender is just a social construct. I wanted to be supportive of those who were suffering. I would use this more evolved language. I didn't see the harm. By the time we began the Megyn Kelly Show podcast in September 2020, the warning signs were everywhere. Abigail Schreier had written her beautiful and immensely important book, Irreversible Damage, documenting the social contagion sweeping teenage and adolescent girls, a group that traditionally had very few members claiming gender dysphoria, but was quickly on its way to having more than any other. Teenage girls in Connecticut were losing on the track to males. Runners who had raced as boys the year before then simply declared themselves female and dominated their new competitors. I had the female runners on the show, along with a trans medical physicist, 
who is also a former athlete, to explain the advantages to trans athletes, especially post-puberty. When I slipped and said the trans girls were biological males, this person told me that was offensive. I explained that it was an attempt at clarity, but began to rethink the language policing. Why did I have to deny reality in order to be polite? What I said was true and not offered to offend, but I wanted to be respectful. Was there any harm? The Connecticut girls sued and went on to lose their case. It's now on appeal. And girl after girl across this country soon faced the same problem. Competing against boys who claimed they were trans was dejecting and often near impossible. They were too strong, too big, too fast, too agile. From wingspan to femur length to lung capacity, heart size, and musculature, they had serious advantages, even with testosterone adjustment, which few competitions required in the first place. American schools, including our own in New York City, began pushing the idea on children that gender is as malleable as a dinner menu order. Our son and his third grade classmates were regularly asked if they were sure they were still boys. Later this and other schools moved away from the terms boys and girls altogether. Now parents pick up their students at day's end, not their sons or daughters. Kids telling teachers they were uncomfortable. So I don't want to get into the minutiae of all of this. We know all of what she's talking about. I talk about it on a regular basis with you. I want to cut to the uh, chase here. What Megyn Kelly did was apologize for her previous um, positions and her previous public acknowledgement of affirming care and, and positive interactions with preferred pronouns. She apologized because she said, I used to do it when I didn't know the harm. Now I know the harm. The harm, she went on to say, was exemplified when a person was standing, a woman that she knows was standing, discussing the harm that comes from pushing the trans narrative on children, was, was assaulted. She was assaulted. She, was, she had things thrown at her. She was hit. She was struck. And that's when she realized, by participating in the promotion of the trans agenda, she was increasing the speed of our slide down that slippery slope to the point where if anybody felt differently, they were going to be attacked, that the majority would be in fear of speaking out, that the majority, uh, which of course is people that would use traditional pronouns, correct pronouns, grammatically accurate pronouns, and, and would grammatically, or excuse me, biologically recognize what a male and a female are and all of these things, they would eventually become the hunted. They would be the ones who would be attacked for simply acknowledging reality. And she was a part of the problem. She went on to point out that there was harm. She just didn't know it, and she was participating in it. When you think about what Megyn Kelly was talking about here and having that light bulb moment for herself, seeing somebody being harmed for daring to say the truth, the true things that she herself knew but refused to say out of decorum and politeness and kindness and so on and so forth, it left people out there exposed. It left people like the the female speaker that she knew exposed. And what does that do? 
It makes everybody terrified to tell the truth. It makes everybody afraid because they don't know that they are not alone. And that's why she said she's done using preferred pronouns. She's done helping the trans ideology grow and expand. Because it hurts not only the kids that are being pulled into this through this massive nationwide psyop. It's a psychological operation. This nationwide agenda. If you aren't pushing back against it, you are enabling it. And she knows that now. And people like her friend, the speaker, who uh, anybody who saw what happened to her, they're not going to speak up. They're not going to say anything. They're going to use whatever pronouns they're told to use. They're going to put he, him, or she, her, or whatever on their own bio lines on their social media. They're going to put it at the uh, signature line on their, on their email. They're going to just be dutiful slaves to the movement because they fear happening to them what happened to the woman. The reality is you need to know that we are right. We are the majority, and it must not be a silent one because we are right. We are the protectors of children and of families and of education. We are not the ones getting in the way of that because we are right. Biology wins. Grammar wins. And we need to say so vocally. And we need to say these things publicly. And we need to let everybody else know it's okay to oppose this massive psychological operation that is tearing our culture apart, that is tearing our our families apart, that is tearing the, the fabric of this society that we have built apart. It's okay to say it because there are more of us saying it that aren't. It's just that people don't know it. Megyn Kelly now knows it. She's going to do her thing on her Megyn Kelly show podcast uh, that's broadcast, I think, on Sirius XM. I want to give full attribution to the clip that I played. She's going to continue. I'm going to continue. You need to start if you are not being bold. Every morning during the month of groom, I'm posting on my Facebook page at the very crack of dawn when I wake up. I'm posting on my Facebook uh, the date. And it says, today is groom 5th, 2023. Protect your children. Tomorrow it will say, today is groom 6th, 2023. Protect your children. And I'm asking people to share it on their walls. Share it on their their, uh, Twitter feeds. Let people know in some way, shape, or form, that you're out there too and you feel the same way and you're going to fight back against this assault on everything that we that we are as a, as a civilization. Let them know. The light, bomb ca- light bulb came on for Megan. It's been on for me for some time. Is it over your head yet? Thanks to Congressman Jim Jordan. Thanks to Dr. Curry Myers. Thanks to Josh and Marianne and Marcy. And thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it very much. We're back again tomorrow. Kirsten and I will join us then. Be well. Be safe. Stay free. Bye-bye.